In Viaggio, The Travels of Pope Francis is a new documentary from Academy Award-nominated director Gianfranco Rossi. The film provides a deeply intimate look at Francis's papacy as he travels the world meeting the faithful. In theaters for special screenings on Monday, March 27th. Find more information at inviagiodoc.com. Available to rent and own on digital March 31st. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines on the biggest stories out of the Vatican. The trial begins at the Vatican today of a Roman Catholic cardinal who used to be a close ally of Pope Francis. This week, we explore some of the more recent happenings at the Vatican's mega trial of the century involving the Vatican Bank. It's claimed that the late Pope, John Paul II, helped cover up child abuse. Also on the show today, we look at allegations of clerical sexual abuse cover-up against Pope John Paul II, which have surfaced in Poland in recent weeks. The allegations date back to when Pope John Paul II was Archbishop in Krakow, Poland. I'm Ricardo de Silva, and this is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from a cold but blue skies New York City, Jerry. Good afternoon from spring day in Rome. So you can see the blossoms. Yes, it's sunshine. It's nice. We have a sensation spring has come. Wonderful. On July 27, 2021, a trial began in rooms inside the Vatican Museum before a bench of three judges of the Vatican City State's Court. At the center of the trial, Cardinal Angelo Becciu, the substitute for general affairs at the Vatican Secretariat of State, likened to being the Vatican's chief of staff, is being tried for embezzlement and abuse of his office. Cardinal Becciu was effectively responsible for the day-to-day operations of the Holy See between 2011 and 2018, when he was appointed prefect of the then Congregation for the Causes of Saints, before resigning from office and giving up his privileges as cardinal. The Cardinal is also the highest ever prelate to be tried by the tribunal since Pope Francis changed the Vatican's rules in April 2021 to allow bishops and cardinals to stand trial in civil and criminal matters. The trial investigates, among others, a controversial $225 million purchase of an investment property in Chelsea, London, which is one of the wealthiest districts in the world. It is alleged the property was paid for in part using funds collected from Peter's Pence, an annual worldwide financial appeal of the Vatican intended to help the Church in its various needs across the world, especially in its outreach and relief to the most materially impoverished people and places. Jerry, why is the Vatican involved in a multi-million dollar investment to begin with? This might seem at odds with our understanding of what the Church does. Well, the Vatican gets money from various sources, and it tries to make the best use of the money and capitalize where it can on this money and to increase the funds available for various purposes the church has throughout the world. The Vatican has long been involved in property investment. I mean, if you come to Rome, you will find many palaces and apartments owned by the Vatican. The trial was really triggered by the fact that the Vatican had originally bought the property but didn't have control of it. And to get full control of it, they needed more money. They went to the Vatican Bank to ask for a loan of $150 million. 
And that's how the Vatican first becomes aware of this shady deal in the first place. Yes. And originally, the Vatican Bank said they would give it to them. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, they said, no, we're not giving it to you because we have problems with this whole investment. And they went to the Pope and they went to the judges. That's how the judicial investigation began. So this investment in the first place, aside from being, you know, dealings with some shady people or some, you know, people who did not show themselves to be financially wise or sound, was also an investment that was made by the Cardinal without the knowledge of pretty much anyone at the Vatican. Well, he claims to have got approval But the reality was where he was getting the money from and whether the money should have been used in that way and whether, in fact, it was a good investment from day one. Mm. And then uh, what has emerged is that the first investor they got involved with, at the end of the day, they didn't have the control of the property. Then they brought in a middleman, another Italian, again, a person who was also another questionable character, bought out the property from the first one, but then kept effective control over the property from the Vatican. So he'd bought the property with the Vatican money, but he actually controlled it at the end of the day, not the Vatican. So just to be clear, I mean, the first person to buy the property was Raffaele Mincioni. Yes, he had the property at the beginning. And thereafter, Gianluigi Torzi. Yeah, and this Torzi, uh, to hand over the controlling shares on the property, he, he demanded a lot of money. He demanded, first of all, $25 million. He eventually, I think, at the end of the day, got about $15 million. But the net result was that the Vatican was the loser down the line. When, in recent times, they actually sold the property, the Vatican was still the loser, and it lost out in this whole operation. So the trial is looking at who had responsibility, who acted improperly or unethically or indeed was involved with embezzlement or extortion. So, Jerry, we're now more than 600 days into the trial. This is the 19th month. What has happened recently that has brought this again to the fore? Well, in the 50th or the 51st hearing, starting at the time of the Pope's 10th anniversary and then going on to more or less St. Patrick's Day, Mm -hmm. you had some really top-level testimony given by the current chief of staff, Cardinal Becciu's successor, the Venezuelan Archbishop Edgar Pena Parra. He arrived in the Vatican in October 2018. Already, the property had been bought in 2014, and a week after he arrived, he was told, we must buy out this property for this amount of money. He recounted the whole story, how he found this hot potato on his table. And how has he gone about dealing with it? He tried to get the loan from the Vatican Bank. They had promised, and then they raised questions about it. And then they denounced it to the judicial authorities, and that triggered the trial. He eventually got the money, gave it to Gianluigi Torsi, another Italian broker, who bought the property, but then didn't give the Vatican the control of it. So the Vatican seemed to have invested about $400 million in a property which they didn't control. And that was where they were up to the end of, I think, 2019. And what did he reveal in his testimony? I think the striking thing was between Archbishop Becciu, the first chief of staff who had become a cardinal, 
and the new chief of staff, Pernapara from Venezuela, there was no real handover. He said this wasn't the practice in the Vatican. One man left the job, a new one came in. But there wasn't a kind of a transfer of information and power. That's the first thing he said. So it raised questions about how the Vatican was functioning. Secondly, he said, when the Vatican Bank, the Institute for the Works of Religion, it's called, said they would give the money, and then twice they told me they would give the money, and then they didn't give the money, and then they denounced it. He said, I began to be suspicious of what was happening. So he got the Vatican Gendarmerie. So just to be clear, the Gendarmerie is effectively the police force of the Vatican. You have the Swiss Guards and the Gendarmerie. There are two separate security forces in the Vatican. Swiss Guards, really the guards of the Pope. The Gendarmerie are the police that monitor and run the Vatican security. So he asks the, the head of the Gendarmerie, you monitor this guy's phone. And he also got an Italian investigator to do so in Italy. Now there's been lots of questions raised. Did he have the authority as chief of staff to actually order the monitoring of the phone of the director of the Vatican Bank? Presumably that kind of permission, were it to go ahead, should have come from Pope Francis. Either from the judicial authorities Mm -hmm. in the first place, or from, normally it's a court order direct from the Pope, who's the chief legislator. But he didn't do it from either. They raised this question in the trial last week. And uh, he said, oh, well, I would do the same again. And then he told the whole story about how the second broker, Torzi, had tried to extort money from the Vatican, 25 million, first of all, then 15 million, and how they had actually involved the Pope directly. Because when the Pope realized the Vatican didn't control the shares, he said, well, you, you have to find a way to resolve this and, and pay out. It, it was a mess, basically. So, Jerry, we have the testimony from Archbishop Penapara. We also had testimony from Betu himself in recent weeks. Yes, the Vatican prosecutor, they called him the promoter of justice. He released an exchange of communication between Betu and the Pope from July 2021. Our audience will remember that the Pope went into hospital on July the 4th, 2021, had a major operation, and he had just come out of hospital when Cardinal Becciu, because he was Cardinal then, wanted the Pope to say that effectively Francis had given him authorization for the investment in the London property and had also given him authorization to hire an intelligence agency and the Sardinian woman, Cecilia Maronia, to help gain the liberation of a religious sister from Colombia who had been kidnapped in Mali in Africa. And so what has become abundantly clear through this testimony is that the Pope never gave such permission, right, beyond any doubt. Well, the fact was that the letters that were released by the prosecutor showed Betchu saying, I want you to write two letters in one, confirming that you gave me authorization to do the London investment. Secondly, confirming that you gave me authorization to get this intelligence operator to help to gain the liberation of the sister who was kidnapped. And the Pope said, no, I, that is not my recollection. And there was a phone call between them. 
And apparently in the phone call, Penapara said the Pope had asked me to send the kind of letters that I needed. And the Pope would not sign off on these. And this is obviously, I think, quite a significant blow to Cardinal Becciu's defense. Everyone here, I think, both in the Vatican among the journalists, was quite surprised, astounded, that the Pope had just come out of a major operation and was being put under pressure by his former chief of staff to give written testimony that he had authorized the operations. You could argue he was being taken advantage of while he was weak. Also, Archbishop Betchu said, when the Pope's response came to me, it didn't seem to be from him. I didn't recognize the Pope's language in it. It's not a very good picture that emerges from this. Really quite a murky picture. And there's been another development, right, which just confuses the situation even further. Betchu's own brother has refused to testify before the trial. Yes, and he was asked to come as a witness, not as a defendant, but as a witness, not being accused. But he refused to come, saying he didn't really think his rights would be protected in the Vatican trial, and he was already under investigation in Italy for some of the same issues. So the judge rejected his claim why he wouldn't come to the trial. And he has given him until, I think, the 30th or the 31st of March to return to the trial and give his testimony. And then the final thing is that Bechu has obviously been quite concerned with how people are interpreting his relationship with Cecilia Maronia. There are many, many unclear questions. You can't make this up. I mean, this is clearly a sordid mess. We're now 19 months into the trial. Is there sight of an end? Some weeks ago, the presiding judge, the president of the tribunal, said that he hopes to bring this case to a close in the fall. It's understood around October maybe around the time of the Synod, before or after, but in the fall. The question is, even with a judgment at that time, does that end the case? Because according to the legal process, you can have an appeals court and then you can have a second appeal. So th this trial could go on for a time. I, I, I sometimes joke and say Netflix will have produced a film before this ends. After the break, we continue to explore the significance of this trial. What lessons can we derive? What reforms are already underway with Vatican finances to ensure the church is saved from such scandal again? And what comes next in the trial? We also look at Pope John Paul II's alleged cover-up of clerical sexual abuse when he was the Archbishop of Krakow in Poland. If you have been looking for a way to grow closer to Jesus' Lent, we have found a great opportunity for you. Daily Rosary Meditations with Dr. Mike Schirschlicht is a podcast where you learn how to meditate and establish a daily habit of prayer while discovering the truths of the Catholic faith. 
Daily Rosary Meditations is the fastest growing community praying the rosary with family and friends around the world. Each day, a different topic is explored, allowing you to learn your faith in bite-sized daily portions while you pray the rosary. So join them every day for scripture, meditation, and a rosary, all in under 20 minutes. The meditations are perfect for your daily commute or morning coffee. You can find them in your favorite podcast app. Just search Daily Rosary Meditations or on the web at dailyrosary.net. So, Jerry, we've gone into some of the more recent detail of this trial, and you've been accompanying it for months now. What is ultimately at stake for the Vatican with the outcome of this trial? I think this trial has enormous significance because it is the clearest instance that accountability is now the order of the day in the Vatican in relation to finances, and that if you have mishandled or misused or overstepped your powers of office, you're going to be held accountable and you can end up in court with the legal consequences that could follow from that. Even if you're a bishop or a cardinal. There is no rank in office that will exclude you from being put on trial if you have misused your office. Which was the case before. We have to be clear about that, that you would not face penal or civil proceedings as a bishop or a cardinal until Pope Francis changed that. This is something new. Secondly, I think also the Pope has approved legislation which would now make it impossible for members of the Secretariat of the State, as happened here, to invest money in questionable operations without having had their investment seriously checked by professionals in the Vatican. Francis has put a whole legal framework around the management of money, the use of money, and investments. And uh, it is very clear also in terms of even getting contracts for working in the Vatican or providing services in the Vatican, they're all very strict regulations now, such as was not there before. What do you think still needs to happen in terms of the Vatican's finances to remedy some of the problems that this trial is showing up? I think practically all the problems that the trial has shown up, uh, there have been introduced legislation to counteract the possibility of a repetition of these. First of all, the choice of investment, the people you invest with, where you get the money from, all this has now got very clear regulations. And I, I think that is the positive side. The, the, the trial is ensuring that there is no such thing as impunity for mismanagement, embezzlement, extortion, or such like with Vatican finances. The regulation is to ensure honest and correct and by the highest financial standards, future investments. So I, I think they've gone a long way. The question is, of course, you may have laws, but do people implement those laws? And that has still to be proven, and we will know in the coming years. Great. 
Thank you, Jerry. I'm sure we will keep watch on the developments in the trial, and certainly towards the end, we'll revisit the trial. And finally, let's turn to something that has happened in Poland. Earlier this month, a news investigation shown on Polish television claims that Pope John Paul II, then Archbishop Karol Wojciela, was aware of and sought to hide abuse by at least three priests under his care in Krakow in the 1970s. Polish channel TVN24 named three priests accused of abusing minors, whom the future pope had subsequently shuffled between parishes or sent to a monastery during the 1970s, including one who was sent to Austria. But this report has been met with much mixed reaction in Poland. Jerry, what do we know? Certainly the reaction has been, as you say, mixed, because on one side the church has immediately responded and said, here is a saint, a hero for our country. People are trying to tarnish his image. And they're blaming left-wing groups. The Archbishop of Krakow said those who are supporting gender theory, abortion, euthanasia, you name it, are behind it. And even the Polish president has come out in support. There was a big discussion in Parliament. They have, I think, passed a resolution honoring John Paul II. The bishops' conference came out at a second stage and said, well, some of these questions will require serious research. So you had the initial reaction was saying, this man is a saint. It is really against church interest, the national interest, to try to smear his good image. A second, more reflective action said, well, people are making charges against him. Let's carry out proper research and see. Uh, Francis himself has said, well, at that time, we're talking about the 1970s, mm-hmm. the late 60s, the 1970s. Uh, it was the praxis across the church, not just in Poland. If a person abused to move the priest who abused to another parish or sent him for some kind of treatment. One of the cases, and this was the one that drew most attention, was when the then Cardinal Wojtyla sent a letter to the Cardinal Archbishop of Vienna in Austria, Cardinal Koenig, saying, I'm going to send you a priest who needs to study about the psychology of minors, etc. He didn't mention that this priest had abused. Now, many people say, well, this is cover-up. But you have to remember, it was the times of the communist regime. And if he put certain things in paper, they would almost certainly be opened and would be used to discredit. Now, one of the criticisms of the documentary, it was a documentary on Polish television, TVN24, which is owned by the U.S. company Warner Brothers Discovery. It was on that television channel that the documentary was shown. Many who defend John Paul II say most of the information in the documentary depended on information from these files of the secret police during the communist era. But there were also people on the documentary who said that they had informed John Paul II. It's a difficult situation for the church in Poland, which is already in great difficulty because several of the bishops have been accused and proven to have covered up, and Pope Francis has removed some of them from office. So the church in Poland is in a crisis situation.
Some said the church in Poland was like a Chile too, in terms of the way it handled the abuse cases. So you have to see the accusations against John Paul II as Archbishop of Krakow in the end of the 1960s and then 1970s up to 1978 when he was elected Pope in this light. And also in the light of how other bishops across the world in the Catholic Church were handling such cases. Did John Paul II cover up? Well, we have to wait and see from the research whether he actually did this. Did he move people from one parish to another? It's possible. But we have to wait for the research. But I think there's something behind this all, Jerry. You know, obviously Pope John Paul II, now Saint John Paul II, there's a whole question about whether he should have been made a saint, Santo Subito, as quickly as he was. And so part of the question now is, if he was involved in the cover-up of sexual abuse, that he should never have been made a saint. On the other hand, we know that every saint was once a sinner, right? So can you not be a saint and still have committed sinful actions? Well, we know that you can because the church makes saints of sinners all the time. So how do we hold these two things in balance? The question is, a saint doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. Mistakes in governance, mistakes in in other ways of life. We don't have infallibility in living our lives or in always getting it right. And John Paul II, as Archbishop of Krakow, was doing what all bishops around the world were doing at the time. He was following the praxis, the guidance that was given. Jerry, I think for St. John Paul II, as for Pope Benedict XVI, right, it's important for us to get to the bottom of these allegations of cover-up, for us to clarify what indeed happened and whether there was any responsibility on their part for what they did. Because the church needs to know, the people of God need to know what happened. At the same time, we can also still respect the instrumental role that these men have played in the life of the church and in bringing about reforms that we have seen over the years. I think people have to understand what is a saint. A saint is not an angel. He's a human being who's had good parts in life, made mistakes, but who has given a good witness to Christ in his life and who has done it in a heroic way. I think if we dug back in the history of saints, we would have many questions about various things various saints may have done. But this does not tarnish their testimony. I think we just like to see things in very linear, straightforward ways. And, you know, as we saw with the Vatican Bank trial, as we've now seen with this question of abuse cover-up by St. John Paul II, there are so many questions that arise And we are never going to have answers to all these questions. But thank you for your time, Jerry, for, you know, digging into some of these questions with me today. I'm sure that our listeners will be enriched by all that you have shared with us. Thank you, Ricardo. We look forward to next week's session. Thank you. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Audio engineering by Kevin Christopher Robles. Production assistance from Kevin Jackson, Christabel Spielman, and Robert Balliser. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. The show is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York 
and also at the studio inside the Jesuits' international headquarters in Rome. To keep up with the latest news out of the Vatican, please follow us on Twitter at INSDEVaticanPod. That's inside, without the second I, VaticanPod. You can also follow me on Twitter at RickDSSJ, that's R-I-C-D-S-S-J, and Jerry at Jerry O'Rome, that's G-E-R-R-Y-O-R-O-M-E. Please consider becoming a digital subscriber to America. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. It's easy to do and the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Ricardo De Silva. We'll see you next time.